Good evening. Welcome to the Just Sleep Podcast. I'm Tasha, your host. Every week, I will read you an old story to help you relax, put the stressful day behind you, and drift off to sleep. Occasionally, we will run ads in order to cover the costs of the production of the podcast. Rest assured, there will be no ads during or after the story. If you prefer an ad-free and intro-free show, you can join Just Sleep Premium. Visit justsleeppodcast.com slash support for more information. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million parents and kids building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash ACAST. That's greenlight.com slash ACAST. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet PlushCare, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Tonight, I continue the story, Journey to the Center of the Earth, by Jules Verne. So lie down, close your eyes, and let me read you a story. Chapter 11 A Guide Found to the Center of the Earth In the evening, I took a short walk on the beach and returned at night to my plank bed where I slept soundly all night. When I awoke, 
I heard my uncle talking at a great rate in the next room. I immediately dressed and joined him. He was conversing in the Danish language with a tall man of robust build. This fine fellow must have been possessed of great strength. His eyes, set in a large and ingenuous face, seemed to me very intelligent. They were a dreamy sea blue. Long hair, which would have been called red, even in England, fell in long meshes upon his broad shoulders. The movements of this native were lithe and supple, but he made a little use of his arms in speaking, like a man who knew nothing or cared nothing about the language of gestures. His whole appearance bespoke perfect calmness and self-possession, not indolence, but tranquility. It was felt at once that he would be beholden to nobody, that he worked for his own convenience, and that nothing in this world could astonish or disturb his philosophic calmness. I caught the shades of this Icelander's character by the way in which he listened to the impassioned flow of words that fell from the professor. He stood with arms crossed, perfectly unmoved by my uncle's incessant gesticulations. A negative was expressed by a slow movement of the head from left to right, an affirmative by a slight bend, so slight that his long hair scarcely moved. He carried economy of motion even to parsimony. Certainly, I should never have dreamed in looking at this man that he was a hunter. He did not look likely to frighten his game, nor did he seem as if he would even get near it. But the mystery was explained when Mr. Fridrikson informed me that this tranquil personage was only a hunter of the eider duck, whose underplumage constitutes the chief wealth of the island. This is the celebrated Eiderdown, and it requires no great rapidity of movement to get it. Early in summer, the female, a very pretty bird, goes to build her nest among the rocks of the fjords with which the coast is fringed. After building the nest, she feathers it with down plucked from her own breast. Immediately the hunter, or rather the trader, comes and robs the nest, and the female recommences her work. This goes on as long as she has any down left. When she has stripped herself bare, the male takes his turn to pluck himself. But as the coarse and hard plumage of the male has no commercial value, the hunter does not take the trouble to rob the nest of this. The female therefore lays her eggs in the spoils of her mate, the young are hatched, and next year the harvest begins again. Now, as the eider duck does not select steep cliffs for her nest, but rather the smooth, terraced rocks that slope to the sea, the Icelandic hunter might exercise his calling without any inconvenient exertion. He was a farmer who was not obliged either to sow or reap his harvest, but merely to gather it. This grave, phlegmatic, and silent individual was called Hans Bielka, and he came recommended by Mr. Fridrikson. He was our future guide. His manners were a singular contrast with my uncle's. Nevertheless, they soon came to understand each other. Neither looked at the amount of the payment. The one was ready to accept whatever was offered. The other was ready to give whatever was demanded. Never was bargain more readily concluded. The result of the treaty was that Hans engaged on his part to conduct us to the village of Stapi, on the south shore of the Snaefell Peninsula, at the very foot of the volcano. By land, this would be about 22 miles to be done, said my uncle, in two days.
But when he learned that the Danish mile was 24,000 feet long, he was obliged to modify his calculations and allow seven or eight days for the march. Four horses were to be placed at our disposal, two to carry him and me, two for the baggage. Hans, as was his custom, would go on foot. He knew all that part of the coast perfectly and promised to take us the shortest way. His engagement was not to terminate with our arrival at Stapi, but he was to continue in my uncle's service for the whole period of his scientific researches for the remuneration of three rix dollars a week, about twelve shillings. But it was an express article of the Covenant that his wages should be counted out to him every Saturday at six o'clock in the evening, which, according to him, was one indispensable part of the engagement. The start was fixed for the 16th of June. My uncle wanted to pay the hunter a portion in advance, but he refused with one word. After, said he. After, said the professor, for my edification. The treaty concluded, Hans silently withdrew. A famous fellow, cried my uncle, but he little thinks of the marvellous part he has to play in the future. So he is to go with us as far as, as far as the centre of the earth, Axel. Forty-eight hours were left before our departure. To my great regret, I had to employ them in preparations, for all our ingenuity was required to pack every article to the best advantage. Instruments here, arms there, tools in this package, provisions in that, four sets of packages in all. The instruments were an Eigel's centigrade thermometer, graduated up to 150 degrees, 302 degrees Fahrenheit, which seemed to me too much or too little. Too much if the internal heat was to rise so high, for in this case we should be baked, not enough to measure the temperature of springs or any matter in a state of fusion. An aneroid barometer to indicate extreme pressures of the atmosphere. An ordinary barometer would not have answered the purpose as the pressure would increase during our descent to a point that the mercurial barometer would not register. A chronometer, made by Boissonat, Jr., of Geneva, accurately set to the meridian of Hamburg. Two compasses, viz. a common compass and a dipping needle. A night glass. Two of Rumkorff's apparatus, which, by means of an electric current, supplied a safe and handy portable light. The arms consisted of two of Purdy's rifles and two pairs of pistols. But what did we want arms for? We had neither savages nor wild beasts to fare, I supposed. But my uncle seemed to believe in his arsenal as in his instruments, and more especially in a considerable quantity of gun cotton, which is unaffected by moisture, and the explosive force of which exceeds that of gunpowder. The tools comprised two pickaxes, two spades, a silk rope ladder, three iron-dipped sticks, a hatchet, a hammer, a dozen wedges and iron spikes, and a long knotted rope. Now this was a large load, for the ladder was three hundred feet long. And there were provisions too. This was not a large parcel, but it was comforting to know that of essence of beef and biscuits, there was six months' supply. Spirits were the only liquid, and of water we took none, but we had flasks 
and my uncle depended on springs from which to fill them. Whatever objections that hazarded as to their quality, temperature, and even absence remained ineffectual. To complete the exact inventory of all our traveling accompaniments, I must not forget a pocket medicine chest containing blunt scissors, splints for broken limbs, a piece of tape of unbleached linen, bandages and compresses, lint, a lancet for bleeding, all dreadful articles to take with one. Then there was a row of vials containing dextrin, alcoholic ether, liquid acetate of lead, vinegar and ammonia drugs, which afforded me no comfort. Finally, all the articles needful to supply Rumcorf's apparatus. My uncle did not forget his supply of tobacco, coarse-grained powder and amadou, nor a leathern belt in which he carried a sufficient quantity of gold, silver and paper money. Six pairs of boots and shoes, made waterproof, with a composition of India rubber and naphtha, were packed among the tools. Clothed, shod and equipped like this, said my uncle, there's no telling how far we may go. The 14th was wholly spent in arranging all our different articles. In the evening, we dined with Baron Trampa, the mayor of Reykjavik, and Dr. Hylton, the leading medical man of the place, being of the party. Mr. Fridrikson was not there. I learned afterwards that he and the governor disagreed upon some question of administration and did not speak to each other. I therefore knew not a single word of all that was said at this semi-official dinner, but I could not help noticing that my uncle talked the whole time. On the 15th, our preparations were all made. Our host gave the professor very great pleasure by presenting him with a map of Iceland far more complete than that of Henderson. It was a map of Mr. Olaf Nicholas Olsen in the proportion of 1 to 480,000 of the actual size of the island and published by the Icelandic Literary Society. It was a precious document for a mineralogist. Our last evening was spent in intimate conversation with Mr. Fridrikson, with whom I felt the liveliest sympathy. Then, after the talk, succeeded, for me at any rate, a disturbed and restless night. At five in the morning, I was awakened by the neighing and pawing of four horses under my window. I dressed hastily and came down into the street. Hans was finishing our packing, almost, as it were, without moving a limb, and yet he did his work cleverly. My uncle made more noise than effective action, and the guide seemed to pay very little attention to his energetic directions. At six o'clock, our preparations were over. Mr. Fridrikson shook hands with us. My uncle thanked him heartily for his extreme kindness. I constructed a few fine Latin sentences to express my cordial farewell. Then we bestrode our steeds, and with his last adieu, Mr. Fridrikson treated me to a line of Virgil, eminently applicable to such uncertain wanderers as we were likely to be. Thereover fortune clears away, thither our ready footsteps stray. Chapter 12 A Barren Land We had started under a sky, overcast but calm. There was no fear of heat, none of disastrous rain. It was just the weather for tourists. The pleasure of riding on horseback over an unknown country made me easy to be pleased at our first start. I threw myself wholly into the pleasure of the trip, 
and enjoyed the feeling of freedom and satisfied desire. I was beginning to take a real share in the enterprise. Besides, I said to myself, where's the risk? Here we are traveling all through a most interesting country. We are about to climb a very remarkable mountain. At the worst, we are going to scramble down an extinct crater. It is evident that Sacknesum did nothing more than this. As for a passage leading to the center of the globe, it is mere rubbish, perfectly impossible. Very well, then. Let us get all the good we can out of this expedition, and don't let us haggle about the chances. This reasoning having settled my mind, we got out of Reykjavik. Hans moved steadily on, keeping ahead of us at an even, smooth, and rapid pace. The baggage horses followed him without giving any trouble. Then came my uncle and myself, looking not so very ill-mounted on our small but hardy animals. Iceland is one of the largest islands in Europe. Its surface is 14,000 square miles, and it contains but 16,000 inhabitants. Geographers have divided it into four quarters, and we were crossing diagonally the southwest quarter, called the Sudvester Fjordunga. On leaving Reykjavik, Hans took us by the seashore. We passed lean pastures that were trying very hard, but in vain, to look green. Yellow came out best. The rugged peaks of trachyte rocks presented faint outlines on the eastern horizon. At times, a few patches of snow, concentrating the vague light, glittered upon the slopes of the distant mountains. Certain peaks, boldly uprising, passed through the grey clouds and reappeared above the moving mists like breakers emerging in the heavens. Often these chains of barren rocks made a dip towards the sea and encroached upon the scanty pasturage but there was always room enough to pass. Besides, our horses instinctively chose the easiest places without ever slackening their pace. My uncle was refused even the satisfaction of stirring up his beast with whip or voice. He had no excuse for being impatient. I cannot help smiling to see so tall a man on so small a pony, and as his long legs nearly touched the ground, he looked like a six-legged centaur. Good horse, good horse, kept saying. You will see, Axel, that there is no more sagacious animal than the Icelandic horse. He is stopped by neither snow nor storm, nor impassable roads, nor rocks, glaciers, or anything. He is courageous, sober, and sure-footed. He never makes a false step, never shies. If there is a river or fjord to pass, and we shall meet with many, you will see him plunge in at once just as if he were amphibious, and gain the opposite bank. But we must not hurry him. We must let him have his way, and we shall get on at the rate of thirty miles a day. We may, but how about our guide? Oh, never mind him. People like him walk without even noticing it. He stirs himself so little that he will never get tired. And besides, if he wants it, I will let him have my horse. I shall get cramped soon if I don't move a little. My arms are all right, but I have to think about my legs. We were advancing at a rapid pace. The country was already almost a desert. Here and there was a lonely farm called a boar, built either of wood or of sods or of pieces of lava, looking like a poor beggar by the wayside. 
These ruinous huts seemed to solicit charity from passers-by, and on very small provocation, we should have given alms for the relief of the poor inmates. In this country, there were no roads and paths, and the poor vegetation, however slow, would soon efface the rare traveller's footsteps. Yet this part of the province, at a very small distance from the capital, is reckoned among the inhabited and cultivated portions of Iceland. What, then, must other tracts be? More desert than this desert. In the first half mile, we had not seen one farmer standing before his cabin door, nor one shepherd tending a flock less wild than himself, nothing but a few cows and sheep left to themselves. What then would be those convulsed regions upon which we were advancing, regions subject to the dire phenomena of eruptions, the offspring of volcanic explosions and subterranean convulsions? We were to know them before long, but on consulting Olsen's map, I saw that they would be avoided by winding along the seashore. In fact, the great plutonic action is confined to the central portion of the island. There, rocks of the Trappian and volcanic class, including trachyte, basalt and tufts and agglomerates, associated with streams of lava, have made this a land of supernatural horrors. I had no idea of the spectacle that was awaiting us in the peninsula of Snaefell, where these ruins of a fiery nature have formed a frightful chaos. In two hours from Reykjavik, we arrived at the burg of Gufenes, called Awulkierkia, or Principal Church. There was nothing remarkable here but a few houses, scarcely enough for a German hamlet. Hans stopped here half an hour. He shared with us our frugal breakfast, answered my uncle's questions about the road and our resting place that night, with merely yes or no, except when he said, Gardar. I consulted the map to see where Gardar was. I saw there was a small town of that name on the banks of the Valfjord, four miles from Reykjavik. I showed it to my uncle. Four miles only, he exclaimed. Four miles out of twenty-eight. What a nice little walk. He was about to make an observation to the guide, who without answering resumed his place at the head and went on his way. Three hours later, still treading on the colorless grass of the pasture land, we had to work round the Kala Fjord, a longer way but an easier one than across that inlet. We soon entered into a pink store or parish called a Yulberg, from whose steeple twelve o'clock would have struck if Icelandic churches were rich enough to possess clocks. But they were like the parishioners who have no watches and do without. There, our horses were fed and given water. Then, taking the narrow path to the left, between a chain of hills and the sea, they carried us to our next stage, the Aukierkia of Brantar, and one mile further on to Saubur Anexia, a chapel of ease built on the south shore of the Havalfjord. It was now four o'clock, and we had gone four Icelandic miles, or twenty-four English miles. In that place, the fjord was at least three English miles wide. The waves rolled with a rushing din upon the sharp-pointed rocks. This inlet was confined between walls of rock, precipices crowned by sharp peaks two thousand feet high, and remarkable for the brown strata that separated the beds of reddish tuff. However much I might respect the intelligence of our quadrupeds, I hardly cared to put it to the test 
by trusting myself to it on horseback across an arm of the sea. If they are as intelligent as they are said to be, I thought, they won't try it. In any case, I will tax my intelligence to direct theirs. But my uncle would not wait. He spurred on to the edge. His steed lowered his head to examine the nearest waves and stopped. My uncle, who had an instinct of his own, too, applied pressure and was again refused by the animal, significantly shaking his head. Then followed sharp language and the whip, and the brute answered these arguments with kicks and endeavours to throw his rider. At last, the clever little pony, with a bend of his knees, started from under the professor's legs and left him standing between two boulders on the shore, just like the Colossus of Rhodes. Confounded brute, cried the unhorsed horseman, suddenly degraded into a pedestrian, just as ashamed as a cavalry officer degraded to a foot soldier. For ya, said the guide, touching his shoulder. What? A boat? Der, replied Hans, pointing to one. Yes, I cried, there is a boat. Why did not you say so then? Well, let us go on. Tadvatan, said the guide. What is he saying? He says tide, said my uncle, translating the Danish word. No doubt we must wait for the tide. Forbida, said my uncle. Yeah, replied Hans. My uncle stamped with his foot while the horses went on to the boat. I perfectly understood the necessity of abiding a particular moment of the tide to undertake the crossing of the fjord. When the sea, having reached its greatest height, it should be slack water. Then the ebb and flow have no sensible effect, and the boat does not risk being carried either to the bottom or out to sea. That favourable moment arrived only with six o'clock, when my uncle, myself, the guide, two other passengers, and the four horses trusted ourselves to a somewhat fragile raft. Accustomed as I was to the swift and sure steamers on the Elba, I found the oars of the rowers rather a slow means of propulsion. It took us more than an hour to cross the fjord, but the passage was effected without any mishap. In another half hour, we had reached the Aul Kirkia of Gardar. Chapter 13 Hospitality Under the Arctic Circle It ought to have been night time, but under the 65th parallel, there was nothing surprising in the nocturnal polar light. In Iceland, during the months of June and July, the sun does not set. But the temperature was much lower. I was cold and more hungry than cold. Welcome was the sight of the boar, which was hospitably opened to receive us. It was a peasant's house, but in point of hospitality, it was equal to a king's. On our arrival, the master came with outstretched hands, and without more ceremony, he beckoned us to follow him. To accompany him down the long, narrow, dark passage would have been impossible. Therefore, we followed as he bid us. The building was constructed of roughly squared timbers, with rooms on both sides, four in number, all opening out into the one passage. These were the kitchen, the weaving shop, the bad stofa, or family sleeping room, and the visitor's room, which was the best of all. My uncle, whose height had not been thought of in building the house, of course hit his head several times against the beams that projected from the ceilings. We were introduced into our apartment, a large room with a floor of earth stamped hard down 
and lit by a window, the panes of which were formed of sheep's bladder, not emitting too much light. The sleeping accommodation consisted of dry litter, thrown into two wooden frames painted red and ornamented with Icelandic sentences. I was hardly expecting so much comfort. The only discomfort proceeded from the strong odor of dried fish, hung meat, and sour milk, of which my nose made bitter complaints. When we had laid aside our traveling wraps, the voice of the host was heard, inviting us to the kitchen, the only room where a fire was lit, even in the severest cold. My uncle lost no time in obeying the friendly call, nor was I slack in following. The kitchen chimney was constructed on the ancient pattern. In the middle of the room was a stone for a hearth. Over it, in the roof, a hole to let the smoke escape. The kitchen was also a dining room. At our entrance, the host, as if he had never seen us, greeted us with the word salvertu, which means be happy, and came and kissed us on the cheek. After him, his wife pronounced the same words, accompanied with the same ceremonial. Then the two, placing their hands upon their hearts, inclined profoundly before us. I hastened to inform the reader that this Icelandic lady was the mother of nineteen children all, big and little, swarming in the midst of the dense wreaths of smoke with which the fire on the hearth filled the chamber. Every moment I noticed a fair-haired and rather melancholy face peeping out of the rolling volumes of smoke. They were a perfect cluster of unwashed angels. My uncle and I treated this little tribe with kindness, and in a very short time we each had three or four of these brats on our shoulders, as many on our laps, and the rest between our knees. Those who could speak kept repeating Salvertu in every conceivable tone. Those that could not speak made up for that want by shrill cries. This concert was brought to a close by the announcement of dinner. At that moment, our hunter returned, who had been seeing his horses provided for, that is to say, he had economically let them loose in the fields, where the poor beasts had to content themselves with the scanty moss they could pull off the rocks and a few meagre seaweeds. And the next day, they would not fail to come of themselves and resume the labors of the previous day. Salvertu, said Hans. Then calmly, automatically, and dispassionately, he kissed the host, the hostess, and their nineteen children. This ceremony over, we sat at table, twenty-four in number, and therefore one upon another. The luckiest had only two urchins upon his knees. But silence reigned in all this little whirl at the arrival of the soup, and the national taciturnity resumed its empire even over the children. The host served out to us a soup made of lichen, and by no means unpleasant. Then an immense piece of dried fish floating in butter, rancid with twenty years' keeping. And therefore, according to Icelandic astronomy, much preferable to fresh butter. Along with this, we had skie, a sort of clotted milk with biscuits, and a liquid prepared from juniper berries. For beverage, we had a thin milk mixed with water, called in this country blanda. It is not for me to decide whether this diet is wholesome or not. All I can say is that I was desperately hungry, and that at dessert I swallowed to the very last gulp a thick broth made from buckwheat. 
As soon as the meal was over, the children disappeared, and their elders gathered round the peat fire, which also burned such miscellaneous fuel as briars, cow dung, and fish bones. After this little pinch of warmth, the different groups retired to their respective rooms. Our hostess hospitably offered us her assistance in undressing, according to Icelandic usage, but on our gracefully declining, she insisted no longer, and I was able at last to curl myself up in my mossy bed. At five next morning, we bade our host farewell, my uncle with difficulty persuading him to accept a proper remuneration, and Hans signaled the start. At a hundred yards from Gardar, the soil began to change its aspect. It became boggy and less favorable to progress. On our right, the chain of mountains was indefinitely prolonged like an immense system of natural fortifications, of which we were following the counterscarp of a lesser steep. Often we were met by streams, which we had to ford with great care not to wet our packages. The desert became wider and more hideous, yet from time to time we seemed to descry a human figure that fled at our approach. Sometimes a sharp turn would bring us suddenly within a short distance of one of these spectres, and I was filled with loathing at the sight of a huge deformed head, the skin shining and hairless, and repulsive sores visible through the gaps in the poor creature's wretched rags. The unhappy being forbore to approach us and offer his misshapen hand. He fled away, but not before Hans had saluted him with a customary silvertu. Spetelsk, said he. A leper, my uncle repeated. This word produced a repulsive effect. The horrible disease of leprosy is too common in Iceland. It is not contagious, but hereditary, and lepers are forbidden to marry. These apparitions were not cheerful, and did not throw any charm over the less and less attractive landscapes. The last tufts of grass had disappeared from beneath our feet. Not a tree was to be seen, except a few dwarf birches as low as brushwood. Not an animal, but a few wandering ponies that their owners would not feed. Sometimes we could see a hawk balancing himself on his wings under the grey cloud, and then darting away south with rapid flight. I felt melancholy under this savage aspect of nature, and my thoughts went away to the cheerful scenes I'd left in the far south. We had to cross a few narrow fjords, and at last quite a wide gulf. The tide, then high, allowed us to pass over without delay, and to reach the hamlet of Alftenes, one mile beyond. That evening, after having forded two rivers full of trout and pike, called Alpha and Heta, we were obliged to spend the night in a deserted building worthy to be haunted by all the elfins of Scandinavia. The Ice King certainly held court here, and gave us all night long samples of what he could do. No particular event marked the next day. Bogs, dead levels, melancholy desert tracks, wherever we travelled. By nightfall we had accomplished half our journey, and we lay at Krosold. On the 19th of June, for about a mile, that is, an Icelandic mile, we walked upon hardened lava, this ground is called in the country Harun. The writhen surface presented the appearance of distorted, twisted cables, sometimes stretched in length, sometimes contorted together. An immense torrent, once liquid, now solid, ran from the nearest mountains, now extinct volcanoes, 
but the ruins around revealed the violence of the past eruptions. Yet here and there were a few jets of steam from hot springs. We had no time to watch these phenomena. We had to proceed on our way. Soon, at the foot of the mountains, the boggy land returned, intersected by little lakes. Our route now lay westward. We had turned the great Bay of Faxa, and the twin peaks of Snaefell rose white into the cloudy sky at the distance of at least five miles. The horses did their duty well. No difficulty stopped them in their steady career. I was getting tired, but my uncle was as firm and straight as he was at our first start. I could not help admiring his persistency, as well as the hunters, who treated our expedition like a mere promenade. June 20th. At 6 p.m., we reached Gourdir, a village on the seashore, and the guide there, claiming his due, my uncle settled with him. It was Hans's own family, that is, his uncles and cousins, who gave us hospitality. We were kindly received, and without taxing too much the goodness of these folks, I would willingly have tarried here to recruit after my fatigues. But my uncle, who wanted no recruiting, would not hear of it, and the next morning we had to bestride our beasts again. The soil told of the neighborhood of the mountain, whose granite foundations rose from the earth like the knotted roots of some huge oak. We were rounding the immense base of the volcano. The professor hardly took his eyes off it. He tossed up his arms and seemed to defy it and to declare, There stands the giant that I shall conquer. After about four hours walking, the horses stopped of their own accord at the door of the priest's house, Astapi. Good night.